So let's get started then. Um, we made it through a big uh, portion of um, Judges chapter 12 last, last week. We'll finish it up this week. It's actually uh, fairly quick, I think, and we should get into uh, Judges 13, Lord willing. So we'll see if we uh, hit any uh, uh, rabbit trails uh, today as we're going, but um, regardless... There he is. How you doing, bud? We're going to start in Judges chapter 12, and we'll pick it up in actually in verse uh, 7 and read through the end of the chapter um, just to give us a kickoff of where we're at. Uh, and we'll pick it up at uh, Danny's table, John and Steve's table, uh, Gary's table, and uh, Tom's table, and our table. I don't think we'll make it that far for, it, for, for chapter 12, but we'll get into chapter 13 shortly. Mm-hmm. Let's start with a word of prayer. Father, thank you again for the opportunity to study your word. Thank you for the way that your word continues to um, continues to teach us, continues to challenge us, continues to open our eyes to new insights. We pray that you will guide and direct us. In this hour, that we would, uh, that your Spirit would speak to us, where we need uh, clarity, and would convict us where we need uh, conviction. We ask again your blessing on our time in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 All right, we're picking up in Judges, chapter twelve and verse seven. Jephthah led Israel six years. Then Jephthah the Gileadite died and was buried in the town of Gilead. After him. That's 12. That was pretty fast. Yeah. A lot of people lived. A lot of people died. So what we have here, again, is, uh, remember, there's a, uh, I don't remember the exact number now. I meant to look it up. There's about a dozen, uh, specifically a dozen, somewhere a dozen to 14 um, total, I know it's a dozen, uh, judges that are listed in the book of Judges. Some of them are go, go into great detail, of, and some don't. There's about roughly 50-50. And in this particular case, we're on, those, we're on three that, that really don't have a lot of information that we're given, although it does give us some hints. Um, you, you've got the idea that after and after and after, the three times in verses 8, 11, and 13 seems to indicate that you need to, to in, interpret this particular passage um, sequentially, there's a reason for them all being together. And what, one of the things that we see here 
is that political marriages become very, very important. Notice that uh, the first guy, uh, Ibzan, he has uh, 30 sons and 30 daughters. By the way, this is one of the few times that we have daughters mentioned. Uh, obviously, Jephthah, we had a daughter mentioned. We, we have very few females. The couple of females early on, they were involved. One was a judge, Deborah. The other one was involved in killing. A couple of them killed people. Uh, with One with a tent peg. She wasn't a judge, but she was there. Remember, her, her husband was in league with, uh, with the enemy, uh, or at least had a, uh, a, not, a non-compete clause, maybe. He was, in, he was, uh, uh, maybe he was just uh, a neutral in, in the fight, but um, we know that he was, uh, and she were from, they were from Moses' families, uh, wife's family's tribe, who had come, remember that? few of you don't okay that's all right <laughs> it's not important other than the fact that the females get mentioned here in this particular case we've got 30 sons 30 daughters by the way that's 60 do you think that was one one woman i'm thinking there was a harem here you know uh, there, there was a group of wives and um and so po- political dynasties uh uh Political associations become very important, and not only just marrying sometimes within the clan, but specifically outside the clan. You want to make sure that, that you don't go to, to war with your neighbor? How do you do that? Intermarriage. How, how do you, in fact, it happens even today in certain countries. India is not unusual for them to still have arranged marriages. And you find that sometimes the arranged marriage is based not upon... Uh, love, but upon what it will do for the two families in tying together the family fortunes. And, and so you have a situation here with uh, this guy who ends up obviously arranging his, <clears throat> his uh, uh, sons and daughters. This usually happens as a result of a treaty uh, being part of this package. And uh, what happens is you you create what you create in essence almost like vassal states. You know you're gonna you're gonna help me because my son is married to your daughter and you don't want your daughter to die. So what do you do? You make sure that that if I need help, you're gonna come and help me. Same thing's true. I'm gonna come and help you if something happens with you. This happens often in political situations. We do this. All the time, we trade favors, if you will. In this particular case, they're tra- trading children back and forth. But anyhow, it does happen. It says that it, it, uh, it uh, he capitalized on, a, obviously, a political opportunity afforded to him. But the interestingly th- interesting thing is he only, he only led Israel for seven years. And then the next guy, <coughs> the next guy is uh, uh, pretty much... Uh, just a mention. He's there and gone. About the only thing I can tell you is that his his name probably relates to the oak tree. I don't know why that's significant other than it is the only thing I could come up with that makes of anything other than the fact that he he lived, he died, and he led Israel for 10 years. Uh, As compared to Ibzan, Ibzan, who has um, is much like much like Gideon Remember Gideon had created, he had how many sons and they, they were all killed off by one? 
except for, well, he had one son that survived other than the, uh, the bad guy. So we have uh, Abdon. <clears throat> Abdon is, uh, he, he has 40 sons and 30 grandsons, and they rode 70 donkeys. What's the significance, again, of having donkeys? That should be peace. Peace, yeah. Transportation, peace. It's, it's what? Able to traverse the mountainside, yeah, absolutely. Transportation, able to traverse. It also is an indicator of royalty. Yeah. Ro- royalty rode on donkeys in, in this particular area of the country, uh, of the world. It, remember, this is not this is not Rome. This is not Greece. This is not where you have war horses. It's not the Philistines. The Philistines are down on the plains. We're going to get to them in chapter thirteen. So we have this uh, group of, of, he has 70, and man, oh man, I'm telling you, uh, most often in what they call the Levant, uh, which is the, the Middle East, uh, that area of Palestine, uh, they rode donkeys, uh, uh, monarchy rode donkeys. I, I don't see it, but it makes sense if you're, if, especially if you've got a lot of country. For those of us who have been, James is not here today, but for those of us who have who've walked to Israel uh, Palestine, man, oh man, I'm telling you, a, don- a horse can't handle some of those mountains. Just can't. Tom ran them. Yeah, Tom, Tom, on the other hand, he ran up and down them. He ran vertically. It's amazing. The man is just an amazing... Light of foot. He's light, yeah, light of foot. <laughs> All right, so <clears throat> I would just say this, that uh, the significance of this list of what sometimes people call secondary... Uh, governors uh, would be probably twofold. One reminds the readers that deliver, uh, the deliverer narrative uh, do not provide exhaustive accounts of all the political realities during that period of time. It just lists them. And secondly, it reminds the reader that uh, that this period, that periods of oppression were interspersed with periods of what prosperity. And political independence, it would appear, for Jerusalem or, or for Israel. Uh, the tribes are developing separately, and yet they're somewhat still interconnected. Uh, and so if I was going to give you any off of this chapter, uh, I would just mention this, that, um, that too often what we see here is we see judges becoming self-interested in gaining more power for themselves and their family versus necessarily doing what's right for Israel. You know, we talk about the, the difference between being a, a, uh, a servant leader and being a leader. And, uh, or, or the other day we were talking, I think it was, was it at Panera's maybe on Thursday or maybe it was on Tuesday? Great. Yeah, we, uh, we talked about the, the, the book uh, From Good to Great by... Um, why am I having such a hard time remembering this Wilson? guy's name? Sorry? Is it Wilson? No, it's not Wilson. We looked it up. Uh, we did. Danny looked it up, but you know. Thanks, Danny. Anyhow, uh, it is a book that talks about le- leadership, and it talks about the, the, t- the, the best kind of leader in a corporate situation is what they call a level five. And they give you the reason for They give you what a level one, two, three, four, and five. And a level four is a charismatic guy who's all really about himself. But a level five 
if you actually look at the, at the explanation that, that this person who is a non-believer tells you this is what a level five is and this is what the, is best for corporate leadership is basically the, what the Bible says is a servant leader. And these guys were not servant leaders at all. Most of them were, it would appear in the list that they are <clears throat> in it for themselves. James Collins. That's it. Jim, Jim Collins is, yeah, I've heard Jim speak. He's got a number of books out. Excellent book if you haven't read it and you want to look, learn about, you know, about servant leadership and get some. What I love about uh, Jim's, Jim Collins is that he, um, he gives you, instead of anecdotal evidence, he gives you actual you know, statistical stuff. And you can say, okay, here it is. You can see, you can see here's what happens when you have a level four leader leading a group and a level five leading a group. And they did this with a variety of different businesses that were the same size, same everything about them, just the difference was the leadership. And over a period of time, he, he uh, examines the, the trajectory of these, of these corporations and he notices that some fly and some fall. And it has to do with leadership. And specifically those that are servant leaders are looking to make it good for the employees. <laughs> Versus for themselves. So, anyhow, that being said, enough said. Um, if I was going to give you uh, anything, let's see. What I would see here in these leaders, it seems to indicate there's a continued spiritual and moral uh, decline. The idea is their responsibility is to save Israel and to stimulate Israel for godly living. I'm not sure that that's necessarily what happens. We don't seem to indicate that. It would seem that they promote their self-interest. They promote materialism. It would appear that they seem to worship power. And that is not really what God wants them to do. That's not really what God wants us to do. Does God want us to, uh, to try to get all the power? Okay, not, apparently not. Apparently, apparently you disagree with me. I, I have the power. All right. So we finished up. I told you we finished up 12, Tom. We finished up 12. All right. Let's take a look at 13. Now, before we, uh, uh, before we dig into 13, let me just tell you a little bit. Let me see if I can get my notes here. Uh, about uh, about the, pal- palace, uh, the Philistines. <coughs> The Philistines, it would appear, came from the area of Greece and across the, the Aegean Sea in, and the, the coast of Turkey. That was their general area of, of where they were from. They were a sea people. And in 12th century BC, they migrated from that area uh, to the coastal plains of Canaan. In fact, it appears that they attempted to take over Egypt. And the pharaoh there at the time was able to throw them out. In fact, it appears that what he did was he gave them control of the coastal areas uh, in what would now be the, the area of the Gaza Strip. And there were about five major cities that the, the Philistines had there. They, so some of them came by sea, some of them came down from the north, and it would appear that they were the ones that, that were able to destroy the Hittite Empire that Israel had to deal with. And the Hittites uh, were ultimately destroyed by uh, Philistines. Think of it like if you study history and Western history, think of the Goths, the Visigoths, 
all of those that come down through Germany and France and end up taking over uh, Italy. And you have the, the barbarians at the gate, you remember? And, and so uh, the emperor of, of uh, the Roman Empire moves. And, you know, first he splits it into like two. You got a, a major empire, uh, emperor and a minor emperor. And then they have two emperors. And then eventually Rome is lost. And so the, the Roman Empire survives in what becomes known as the Byzantine Empire in the east. But what he takes over is a group of barbarians come through and they are not able to placate them. Now they're able to save part, ports of, portions of Rome as a result of who? Remember who does? I'm not looking for a name, I'm looking for a title. Do you know who takes and helps save Rome? The first pope. The pope. <laughs> and one of the popes does that. And the church is, is able to, uh, to save a good portion of Rome as a result of that. So, anyhow, that being said, Philistines come in, they conquer the land. Uh, they have five key cities, Ashdod, Gaza, Ashkelon, Gath, and Ekron. Uh, there the land, the coastal plain is where they're at. Then there's the Shefla, which is the, the hilly area. Uh, so as you go from flat plains, you start getting into the hills, and then you eventually get into the mountains, and the mountains will be where, say, Jerusalem is at, <clears throat> and some of those cities through there, which is right along the edge of the, the Jordan Valley. Yeah? I think it was in like the late 400s when Rome was sacked, and then the Pope um, had uh, left, and I got to go into the castle, which was right across the Tiber from where I was staying. Uh-huh. And, go through the, and then it showed where he, where, you know, all his quarters and stuff uh, during during the uh, overtaking of Rome where he stayed. Ah, interesting. There's a lot of history in, in Rome, man. You can spend, just like Palestine, you, know, you could spend years. You spend like five hours. Oh, we yeah. 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 Yeah, we spent five hours and saw all of Rome. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> well, I got to see all the cool stuff. You know, got, like, all the armor. Oh, wow. All the weaponry. You know, cool. The castle, you know, so it was... Fully All right. So uh, the low country is uh, is the Shefla, the hills, the, the mountains, and then you've got the plains. So the plains are where the, the, the Philistines live. By the way, the Philistines control armor. They, they basically uh, do not allow Israel uh, to have a blacksmith. In fact, you, you would have to read in, in uh, 1 Samuel, you read about that. That, and as a result of that, they can't work iron. The iron is, is considered as, as precious as gold at that time. And the Philistines had armor. No one else did. So you have bronze weapons against armored weapons. It doesn't work so well. You know? <clears throat> and so th- that's one of the reasons the Philistines are able to do so well on the plains. Plus they have chariots. Chariots don't work well in the mountains, especially around Jerusalem. Don't work well at all. Be horrible trying to trying to have a chariot. So Israel's able to take the high country, but not so not so much the plains. And Philistines are one of the one of the areas that becomes a thorn in their flesh. In fact, we read in verse uh, thir- chapter thirteen, verse one, that the Philistines, uh, uh, the Lord gives Israel into the hands of the Philistines for forty years. So they've had almost almost twenty five thirty years of peace with Jephthah and these three other guys. <clears throat> and then the and then Israel does what it always does. Of course, you know, none of us ever do that, right? 
things are going great. Say, you know, God, we got this. Don't worry about it. We'll take care of it. We'll call you when we need you. Because that's what I always do. I know none of you do that. I can see that on your face. You're busy looking down at your Bibles, staring off into space. No one wants to admit that. You know, we have this tendency to do that to God all the time. All right, so let's take a look at Samuel. Uh, Samson, excuse me. This is going to be about four chapters. We're going to be lucky if we get through this one. Chapter 13, we'll read about his, uh, read a little bit about him. So let's do this. Let's pick it up in, in chapter 13, chapter, uh, uh, chapter 13, verse 1, and we'll read through, eh, let's read through the rest of the, ch- read through the whole chapter. Where do we leave off? Okay. The Israelites again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And the Lord gave them into the hand of the Philistines forty years. There was a man named Manoah from the city of Zorah. He was from the tribe of Dan. Manoah had a wife, but she was not able to have any children. The angel of the Lord appeared to her and said, You are barren and childless, but you are going to become pregnant. Now see to it that you drink no wine or other fermented drink, and that you do not eat anything unclean. You will become pregnant and have a son whose head is never to be touched by a razor, because the boy is to be a Nazarite, dedicated to God from the womb. He will take the lead in delivering Israel from the hands of the Philistines. Then the woman went to her husband and told him, a man of God came to me. He looked like an, the angel of, an angel of, the, of God, very awesome. I didn't ask him where he came from, uh, and he didn't tell me his name. Mm-hmm. But he said to me, You will conceive and give birth to a son. Now then, drink no wine or other permanent drink, and do not eat anything unclean, because the boy will be a Nazarite of God from birth and until the day of his death. Then Manoah prayed to the Lord, O Lord, I beg you. Let the man of God you sent to us come again to teach us how to bring up the boy who is to be born. God heard Manoah, and the angel of God came again to the woman while she was out in the field. But her husband, Manoah, was not with her. Then the woman ran in haste and told her husband and said to him, Look, the man has just now appeared to me, the one who came to me the other day. Manoah got up and followed his wife, came to the man and said, be the man who spoke to my spoke to this woman, I am replied. So Manoah asked him, What were uh, when your words are fulfilled, what is to be the rule that governs the boy's life and work? And the angel of the Lord said unto Manoah, Of all that I said unto the woman, let her beware. She may not eat anything that comes from the vine, or she drink wine or similar drink, nor eat anything unclean. All that I commanded her, let her to observe. Then Manoah said to the angel of the Lord, Please stay here until we can prepare a young goat for you to eat. The angel of the Lord said to Manoah, If you detain me, I will not eat your food. But if you want to prepare a burnt offering, then offer it to the Lord. For Manoah did not know that he was the angel of the Lord. Then Manoah asked the angel of the Lord, What is your name? The 
want to know so that we can honor you when what you have said really happens. He replied, why do you ask my name? It is beyond understanding. Then Noah took a young goat together with the grain offering and sacrificed it on a rock to the Lord. And the Lord did an amazing thing while Noah and his wife watched. As the flame blazed up from the altar towards heaven, the angel of the Lord ascended in the flame. Seeing this, Manoah and his wife fell with their faces to the ground. When the angel of the Lord did not show himself again to Manoah and his wife, Manoah realized that it was the angel of the Lord. We are doomed to die, he said to his wife. We have seen God. But his wife answered, If the Lord had meant to kill us, he would not have accepted a burnt offering and grain offering from our hands, nor shorn us all these things, or now told us this. The woman gave birth to a boy and named him Samson. He grew, and the Lord blessed him. And the Spirit of the Lord began to move upon Manoah and between Zara and Esther. Okay. All right. So let's go back and unpack this a little bit. <clears throat> so we have uh, kind of this birth story that we have a pious but barren woman who longs for a, a son. She receives a divine revelation and a visitation announcing the birth, the future birth of a special child uh, for a special destiny. And then we have the birth of the child announced and the, the child's name is given. Does that sound vaguely familiar to anything else? And the symbol of what's to come. Sarah. Yeah, yeah there's a whole, here's the thing. Think of it this way. There's a problem. God decides he's going to deal with the problem. And so God sends a baby. He sends a baby. To solve the problem. Think about that. Abraham and Sarah, Isaac. Anybody else? Jesus, yeah, that's the obvious one at the very end, but there's some others along the way. What about Moses? There's a problem. There's an issue. It's been 400 years. There's supposed to be a deliverer coming to the to the people of Israel. They've, they they were promised. When, when I think it was Genesis 15, uh, Abraham and actually the Lord makes a, a covenant with Abraham because Abraham can't fulfill. He can't walk through the. The, 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 the split animal uh, in the covenant because there's no way that Abraham's going to be able to live up to but God says I'm going to promise that I will live up to the promise of this covenant four generations you're going to live in this land then your people are going to be gone for 400 years at which time I will bring them back because the cup of defilement for the nation of the Amorites is not full What was the 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 cup of the of damnation for the for the nation of the Amorites is not full. They weren't bad enough yet. They Here's the thing: God is God is slow to anger. He doesn't want anyone to perish. He's willing for anybody to turn back to him. He does, but but there comes a point in time. He says, "Okay, that's enough." And he's saying. You know what? They're so bad they're going to get worse. And when they get when they get to absolute worst possibility, 
I'm going to destroy them. Now, by the way, does he do that to, uh, doesn't necessarily destroy the nation of Israel, but he, he says, okay, I'm going to give you enough rope. You can do it yourself. You can go your own way. And then eventually, what does God do? He punishes them because of their wickedness. God never allows wickedness to go unpunished. There are times when he, he seems to not punish us to the same extent that we could be punished. Because after all, what are, what, what, are, what are we deserving of? Damnation. Damnation, right. Right. So God is slow to anger and he allows us to, to come to, to Christ. The Holy Spirit draws us, right? We don't go seeking him. The Holy Spirit seeks us. And so the result of that is that, you know, we, we end up becoming followers of Christ when we, when we put our full trust in him. But the, the purpose of that is to bring us into relationship with God. And so God is always trying to bring people back into relationship with him. It's just that most of us just don't just ignore it. So anyhow, you got Moses. You've got, uh, <clears throat> you've got uh, uh, Abraham and Sarah and Isaac. You've got Moses and his family. You've got who else? You've got Samuel. Remember the story of Samuel? His mother, Hannah, is barren, doesn't have a child. She wants a child. What does God do? In a special way, he gives her a child. And the result of that is we have probably the best of all of the judges. In fact, he's so good, we're not going to keep him in the, in the book of Judges. We're going to give him his own book. Maybe two. Just saying. Yeah. Uh, so uh, the sequel, anyhow. By the way, in in the in the uh, Jewish Bible, all of the books that are that have doubles, you know, like First and Second Samuel, is actually just one book. First and Second Kings, one book. First and Second one book. Uh, it's just that you know, uh, apparently Gentiles can't handle long <laughs> books, so we we divide it up. You know, I don't know why we didn't do that with Isaiah because yeah, it's sixty six chapters. That would have been nice to you know chop that up a little bit maybe, but. Gary wants me to do Isaiah, and I told him it would take us about four years <laughs> probably to get through Isaiah. But one of these days, I'll have the guts to try it. Yeah, I got the you got the guts. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Today, yeah. <laughs> today, today your, your number will be drawn. So I just think it's interesting that God does this amazing thing, and he always does it. And then, and then Joseph and Mary and Jesus. Think about, what, think about the implications of God's way of solving a problem is often sending a baby. What, is that, what does that tell you? Solutions are not always fast fixes. You get a child, does, is he ready to do anything? You've you got to wait till he's grown, right? Before he can really do much. Now, yeah, I know Samuel, Samuel is a little different. He's... He gets a call from God, you know, as a as a child, but that that's an unusual. How long is it? Yeah, oh yeah. So is conception always the same way? Conception is always the same way. I'm sure. For these, does it? Child, these babies are speaking. Child Samson was conceived by a parent woman. Yes. Yeah. Well, we don't know that it wasn't necessarily a barren woman, but in this particular case, it was a she was barren in the sense that she had never had a child and she had never known a man. But most of the others, the issue is they hadn't been able to have have kids. 
So for whatever reason, God had closed. And oh, by the way, Elizabeth would be another one. Right. Elizabeth and John the Baptist would be another baby so in the kingdom. The answer is yes. Kind of. <laughs> kind of. Jesus was Except, the one that was in the back. Yes. Yeah. There you go. Yeah. yeah. The other one was all by Although it would appear that God somehow supernaturally worked out some way to allow them to have this child. For whatever reason, they hadn't had a child, and now they, are, they have a child. Whether it's, you know, I, am not gonna tr- I can't explain to you the, uh, the, the way that, that God's mind works, but apparently it works in very unusual ways, and certainly different than mine. Um, well, it's an amazing one with Sarah, because she's so old. Yeah. And then I would say the, the, the one that's the most interesting would be obviously Mary, you know, which again I come back to uh, uh, the Orthodox Church. One of her titles in the Orthodox Church is my, f- my favorite reference uh, of understanding of who Mary is. She was the God bearer, she's the vessel by which God enters, the, enters into the world. It's just, it's, I think it's an amazing title. I love that title. Um, Skywalker's mom. Skywalker's mom. Okay, good to know. <laughs> so, a, so the, the, notice that... Yeah, yeah, you can start, start the story of the Bible that way, couldn't you? In a land far, far away. <laughs> well, often that's what happens in these, in, in many of these plots that we have in movies that are found in, in, uh, yeah, in the Bible. In fact, we get into chapter 14, it just cracks me up. The woman, just she just, oh, you don't love me because you've not told me the, the, the uh, riddle that everyone else knows. Oh, she she just whines and whines and cries and moans and, and complains until, you know, Samson is really strong when it comes to everything but women. He is the weakling when it comes to women in his life. It's just amazing, you know. It's amazing how often we're the same way. We, you know, women just, you know, something about it just, just changes us into a pile of jelly, you know. When it comes to, to women. Anyhow, so, so this woman is, a, a person appears to her. She has no idea who he is. She thinks he's an angel. But she tells, and notice her husband isn't there in the process. I find it fascinating. The wife's there, but the, and so the man, I think the man is not really happy. I, I, I'm, I might be reading into this passage a little bit, but I think the man is, is a little perturbed that the angel doesn't come to visit him. And he says, so we're going to pray and ask God to send this guy back and talk to us. I think also that this man is this not a true believer in the Lord. She is, but he isn't. Interesting. Because he wanted to worship the angel. He says, right. tell us your name so that when your, these things happen, we can praise your name and bring glory to your name. And so I don't think he's a true believer. That's why the angel never appeared. Well, the angel, he eventually does obviously appear to him because he's but he not, for, not but choice his wife. yeah, it's his wife. You know, hey, by the way, wait right there. I got to go get my husband because he doesn't believe me. You know, which that's a whole other can of worms. We won't open up. Okay. All right, good. We won't open up that can of worms. So yeah, isn't it interesting that that the angel speaks to to uh, Manoah's wife, but not to him, and then. When she, and, then, and then Manoah prays, and then, and then it, you know, here's another thing about that though. He wants to know the name, 
Why would you want to know the name? So he could worship him. Um, okay. It's that old idea you talked about where they can control a deity. If you know a deity's secret name, you can control the deity. This goes all the way back to Egypt. If you knew the Egyptian gods' names, you could bend them to your will. If you knew the secret names of the gods of the, of the Canaanites, you could bend them to your will. If I knew God's secret name, I could bend him to my will. That's why I want to know his name. I want to bend him to my will. He brings more credence to this guy was a non-believer. Probably. Well, at least he's a—he's certainly a Jewish uh, person who has been fully Canaanized. Right. Let's put it that way. He is—he is—he has swallowed the, the 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 stories and the theology of his Canaanite neighbors yeah. to a T. He—he he is strong in there. And, oh yeah, let's get the name because now I'm going to be able to control him. And, and he says, no, 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 my name is so amazing; it's beyond understanding. One, some of the translations call him what? What did some of your translations say? Verse 18. Give me something else. I can do it, but it's much better if you actually look it up. Verse 18. Why do you ask me my name? It is wonderful. wonderful. Does that sound vaguely familiar to anything else you know? Too wonderful for you to understand. Okay. I... In Isaiah, I think it's chapter, is it chapter 7? I'm trying to remember. Where he says that the the child will be born, his name will be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Shalom, Prince of Peace. What we've done is we've identified, in my opinion, we've identified this is a Theophanies or a Christophanies, in, in my personal opinion, if you don't agree with me, that's okay. I don't mind. You, you can just sit there in your wrongness. There's a lot of implications. And the fact that it eventually says the angel of the Lord, not an angel of the Lord. And remember, theoretically, theologically, most translate, early translations of the, of the, the scripture into, into English, when it says the angel of the Lord, it's referring to probably a Theophanes, or perhaps in this particular case, a Christophanes, which is a what? What is the what is the definition of a theophanies? When it says the angel of the Lord, uh-huh. it's referring to the head of all the angels, which is Christ Himself. And when the term theophanies means God, right? Theo is God, right. and Christo, Christo or is is Christ. But what I'm saying is, it's a it's an appearance of God in a human form. And which is unusual because what God, God the Father, is a spirit. spirit, and Christ is now has a body. But prior to his birth, did he have a body? He could have a body. He could have he one. He, and so he appears when he appears outside of time. So an example is, is when the three angels appear to Abraham. One of them was actually the Lord Himself, and one of the prophets. <coughs> So there, there is there are times when when Christ it would appear that Christ appears 
outside of normal time frame, which would have been at his birth, and then for 30 years when he then has a body. Up to that point in time, we say that those appearances, where it's Christ, we call it, in, in theology, we call it a Christophanes. And that was uh, your, your 50 cent word for the day. I also heard of this Yes, that's another way of explaining it, but that takes more words than Christophanes. <laughs> and the, theolo- theolo- theologians always love big words, you know, and the bigger the word, the better, the happier they are. So, all right. Well, just they think at the end of the chapter that they have seen God, except not yeah. just an angel, but they've seen God, and therefore, at least Manoah thinks they're going to die. Now, let's talk about that. We're, we'll jump around a little bit, but that's okay. What does that tell you? What's the significance of the fact that we've seen God, we're going to die? And Here's what is... Of well, we, we, we know that God is... We've been told that no one can see God and live because of his holiness. The burning blue Moses look, yeah. yeah, we've got, you know, I'm going to pass by you in the cleft. The, I'm going to put you in the cleft of the rock. You can look at my back. You can't look at my front because... I'm too, I'm too powerful, too holy, too amazing, and you would just, you know, in Indiana Jones terms, to get another movie in there instead of Star Wars, you would just melt, you know, you, if Indiana Jones in the, in the uh, temple, yes, thank you, uh, the Ark of the Covenant and all that, yes, okay, so, uh, we don't know for sure, but, but one of the things that's interesting about uh, this is that who has a better handle on their theology, or at least logic? The wife, which goes to to Steve's comment about. Well, I'm not sure how you know if he's if he's a true believer. He's a really weak one who has no understanding of his theology at all. So perhaps he isn't a believer. But she goes, now wait a second. How, why would we die? First of all, he accepted our offering, right? He accepts the offering. That that would indicate that. He told us what to do. He accepts it, and, he, and, and fire comes down from heaven and consumes it. And he ascends up in the in the fire of the, of the smoke, and he's like, "Whoa!" And then on top of that, didn't he just tell us that what you're going to have a ba- I'm going to have a baby, you moron? That was, you know, that's that's Val's loose interpretation of, uh, of Judges thirteen. I'm going to have a baby. There. Very possible. Very possible. So, if uh, this this whole issue of being a Nazarite, what's that all about? Okay. It comes out of Numbers chapter six, and and the first eight verses. Maybe with the time we got, let's let's turn there and look at least a little bit. Numbers chapter six. So Numbers is in the books of the law or the Pentateuch or the Torah. Thank you. For those of you who have a little a little a little understanding there of the okay, so in Numbers chapter six, verse one, it says, The Lord said to Moses, Speak to the Israelites and say to them, If a man or a woman wants to make a special vow, a vow of separation to the Lord as a Nazarite, he must abstain from wine and other fermented drink, and uh, he must not drink uh, vinegar made from wine or any other fermented drink. He must not drink grape juice or eat grapes or raisins, 
as long as he is a Nazarite. He must not eat anything that comes from the grapevine, not even the seeds or the skins, which means that we can't have grappa if we're going to be up to sing. All right. Uh, During the entire period of the vow of separation, no razor may be used on his head. He must be holy until the period of his separation to the Lord is over. He must let the hair of his head grow long. Throughout the period of um, his separation to the Lord, uh, he must not go near a dead body, even if his own father or mother or brother or sister dies. He must not make himself ceremonially unclean on account of them, because the symbol of his separation to God is on his head. Throughout the period of uh, his separation, he is consecrated to the Lord. All right, we won't go further. There's a lot more there, but that, that's the, the general gist of it. So what is it you're su- not supposed to do if you have, or, or t- you're supposed to do? Don't cut your hair. No, don't, drink anything no. don't drink anything. Don't have anything to do with grape at all or any fermented drink. You know, they didn't have good water, though. How would they do that? I don't know. I don't know. And don't, what else? Don't touch it, anything that's dead. No dead. All right. So this uh, Nazarite oath was not reserved just for the Levites. No. Anybody could do this? Yeah. You could take it. Basically, you had to be an adult. Yeah. But it's not going to make you a priest. No, no, no. It's not going to make you a priest. In fact, uh, probably Luke, we, talk, we talked about this in, in uh, Acts when we, we were talking about uh, Paul. It's very possible that Paul took a Nazarite vow on his way back to Jerusalem, and when he was there, he cut his hair. Uh, as, and one of the things you do is you cut your hair and you burn it as part of the, the ending of, the, of the, the vow. The interesting thing about Nazarite vows is that they're not permanent. They're not lifelong. They're for a period of time. What's significant about Samson? It looks like he's born into it. Lifetime. Lifetime Nazarite. From yeah, and, yeah. Good, yeah, and notice, notice, notice what what is it? What are the what are the rules that the mother is given? She can't drink wine. What else? Can't cut her hair. Eat anything unclean. Why would it be necessary to tell her that? Isn't that in the law already? That the, the Jews were not supposed to. Israel was not supposed they, to. This is the problem. The judges was that once you hear Israel was supposed to meet go through the law. And during the time of the judges, they didn't do that. That's right. So nobody had any idea what was going on. And he said, well, let's do this. Let's do that. Yeah. Because they didn't do that. They never quite knew what they were supposed to do. Yeah. They didn't know the rules, basically. And so so what is happening is here is Israel is so bad when it comes to their their being able to follow the law, which is, the by the way, the law is, it, we, we, Remember, we, we talk about this, we've talked about this, the word law is, a, is kind of a misnomer. We think of it as though, oh, I have to obey these rules and this is really hard for me and I can't believe I have to do this. Instead of understanding that really when Torah means a, a way of life. So this is a way of life. This is how I'm supposed to live my life and God does this for all kinds of reasons. Some of it's ceremonial to keep us clean ceremonially before God, but part of it is what? Our health. 
it, 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 we find that some of the rules and the laws that, that the Jews lived by, or in, and in case still the more orthodox one lived by today, is really important. The reason that we can eat pork today and, and not get sick is because we don't kill the ones. Look, trust me, there is no way I would eat pork in India. I've seen the pigs over there. I've seen what they eat. There is no way in the world I would want to eat a pig in India. There's, no, there's, a, there's a reason why they're considered unclean. Trust me. <laughs> they eat anything and everything. So, you know, here when we, we raise pork, we, we, we feed them good, much better and, and they're much cleaner, you know, so we can, we can get away with it. So I have a question then. Is, was a lot of people consider Jesus as a Nazarite? Was he a Nazarite? I have no idea. Drink wine. Well, he drank wine. I mean, we know he made wine, so I'm so assuming he partake. A lot of people assume that he was Nazarite. That's why he usually came with long hair. But then if that's the case, then he wouldn't drink wine. Well, the problem with having long hair is, you know, that we, we, all, we copied that from the original, one of the original photographs we have of him, in which he looks very much like a Gentile. He's very, he's very goy looking in most of the pictures that we have of, of Jesus, you know, which is. Yes, there, there's a Nazarite and Nazarene, and there's a difference between the two. Yeah, you're right. And so you're right. A lot of people might consider that, that he's a Nazarite, and he's not necessarily Nazarite. He's from the town of Nazarene. And, of course, you know, we all know that can anything good come from, uh, from uh, Galilee, right? Can any prophets come from Galilee? Yeah. In chapter 6, yes. um, the Lord gives Moses a commandment, too, in that chapter. Um, it's also known as the Jewish blessing. Oh, yeah. Yeah, and, you talk later in the book? Yeah, later in the chapter. Yeah. Same chapter. Yep. And, um, you know, you probably heard of generational curses. Yes. But all the way back and then all the way to this day, this generational blessing yep. is what the fathers give the kids. Typically, on uh, Friday night before they go to services. You're talking about verse 24? Yeah, and they, what they'll do is they'll actually lay their hand on their on their uh, children's head and then give this blessing. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord smile down upon you and show you His kindness. May the Lord answer you, your prayers, and give you peace. Mm-hmm. And so they, they've been doing this all these generations. And, uh, you know, look at all the blessings that Jewish people have had. You know, well, uh, yeah, wisdom, like Solomon. So it's, it's uh, one of the more important chapters, I think. Well, it's good. Isn't that the benediction that they used to use, like a, especially the Catholic Church? Yeah, a lot, a lot of churches yeah, use it as yeah, a benediction. Yeah, I used to. I had, uh, yeah, I had a, a, a list of benedictions that I would give at the end of a. And depending on how I felt this service was going and the direction of the service would be my choice of, you know, benediction. But, yeah, this is one of the ones I would use. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord turn his face towards you and give you peace. Yeah, that's a... It's a it, this blessing you know, extends now to the uh, spiritual Jews. Um, you know, if you had the opportunity to bless your, your, your children now with this blessing... It, it, it can have a, a big effect on them spiritually. 
Absolutely. Numbers, Numbers chapter six and verse roughly twenty-four. You can put it. You can do it for your grandchildren too. You could even do it for me. You might. You might be behind. Yes. We're at, at Presbyterian Church. Yeah. Yep. There are a number of uh, passages. I used to use some, a couple out of the New Testament as well, and I used to just keep a list in my in my Bible that I used on the pulpit, and I'd have it with me so I could because I could I would never you never knew what was going to come out of my mouth when I start talking. I I can't tell you the number of times I'm at I'm at Christmas and I'm wishing everybody a happy birthday, or I'm at, <laughs> uh, you know. I'd, I said, well, you know, it is Jesus' birthday. I got out of that one, but it was. <laughs> so the offering is a congregation's evaluation of the sermon, and you're betting you're. Oh, I'm giving. You're, you're trying to say I, I give my benediction based upon how well they give. I have no idea how much okay. they give. I never. I never. The way so that I, the way that I work. No, this is how I felt the Spirit was leading, but thanks. Oh, for... <laughs> he wasn't listening for the change. <laughs> was, yeah. We did have one. We, I, I served, I, I heard, I served one church where, where it was a big deal that we gave, uh, we did a, a, a everything in your pocket kind of offering. And so it, we were doing some kind of, spe- I think somebody needed some extra money for something or other, and we decided we were going to take up an offering. So... It was a big deal. Was that a lot of guys would carry change in your pockets? It was a lot of fun to toss change into the metal. into that metal plate and here it go. <laughs> tsh, you know. So, but yeah, we used to. Kids used to like that doing it too. But anyhow, no, I I I never counted the money, nor did I ever touch the money. No, it's always good to not know whatever what anyone is giving. In my opinion, it makes make sure that you don't treat somebody differently because they give or don't give. You know, because just because people give, people sometimes give based upon. I think the tithe. Then we're off subject again. Sorry, but it, I think the tithe is is not just a matter of financial giving, but of giving of your your time, your talent, and your treasures. Those three things. And so sometimes, you know, if someone doesn't have a lot of money. They might give a lot to the church in other ways, and that's something that they need to. They stand before God to answer for it. I can teach on it, but I, I don't. I don't want to know what. When I was in when I was in college, my the girl that I thought I was going to marry, which ended up not being my wife, um, she and I had grown up together, and uh, she got a, a job at our uh, home church, and she was in the finance office. And part of her job was back in the day was to record what everyone gave. You know, you'd get the offering slips. And she would, she walked out of there one day, and she just had this disgusted look on her face when I picked her up. I said, "What's going on?" She goes, "You would not believe how little some of these people give in this church that that we think are so important." And I go, "I don't want to know. <laughs> don't want to know. <laughs> that's a that's a burden I don't have to bear. You know, much as I might like to know." You know, but it'll, it'll change my opinion of people. So, anyhow, that was when I was in college. So, yeah. All right, so where are we at here? Uh, 
we get the promise. Yeah, it is 7.30. So why don't we just stop here? We'll wrap up 13 uh, next week, and we'll get into 14. How's that sound? All right? All right. Well, let's have a word of prayer. Father, thank you again for the way that you continue to work in our lives. Thank you, Father, that when so often you answer our needs and our prayers by something that's so small and fragile that it takes time for it to grow. It takes time for a baby to grow and to become a man, be able to work out your will in the lives of those around him or her. And we thank you again, Father, for the way that you are uh, working in our lives. Uh, It indicates to me the need for patience. And so often uh, we're like the little kid that says, you know, I want patience and I want it right now. And um, so we pray that you would help us to learn Uh, patience, to learn a long obedience in the same direction, and that we would learn to love you more and that we would commit ourselves to being faithful to you for the long haul, not for the short term. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.